Good morning. Welcome. Uh, if you're if you're a guest with us today, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's so good to be together today. I just have a couple qu- Thanks, Quincy. <laughs> hey, I, I just a couple questions. How many of you here today are tired? Not just because it's daylight savings time. Like seriously, how many of you are just tired? How many of you are dealing with uncertainties? How many of you are afraid? How many are overwhelmed? How many of you come today bursting with joy? (laughs) You know, I was just thinking this morning, you know, the reason all of us are here, whatever we come with, is because God has called us to this place. We're not just here today because we remembered to set our clocks last night. We're here because God has called us to this place. And as Jennifer reminded us earlier, whatever we bring, we can give those things to God. We gather together on Sunday, the day of the resurrection, being reminded that the life-giving power of God's grace meets us in whatever is going on in our lives. And so we come together today because we want God's grace fresh and new in our lives today. We want to be reformed, renewed, recreated into the likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And our desire as a congregation is not just that we would experience that ourselves, but that we would experience God's love and grace in a fresh and new way in us so that it can be made known through us as well, right? You know, Pastor Mindy uh, challenged us to, to set aside time during this season of Lent to, to be in Scripture and to be in prayer. And, and I just echo that with what Pastor Mindy was saying earlier. I'd also just remind you, in these next several weeks as we journey towards Easter, to, in your prayers, be praying for several people in your life who need to know the love and grace of Jesus Christ. How many of you know somebody in your life who needs to know and experience the love and grace of Christ? I just encourage you to just take a few moments each day and just lift them to God. You know, lift, you know, my, my prayer is that when we celebrate Easter in a few weeks, we want to just celebrate the resurrection that happened 2,000 years ago, but that we would celebrate the resurrection power of God being, or making lives new today as well. Amen. So I'd invite you to to join me in praying for those people in your life. If you have your Bibles with you today, uh, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 2. And we're going to start in in verse 27 today. I just invite you to stand as we read God's word this morning. Daniel answered the king, Sages, enchanters, dream interpreters, and diviners can't explain the king, to the king, the mystery he seeks. But there is a God in heaven, a revealer of mysteries who has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Now this was your dream. This was the vision in your head as you lay in your bed. As you lay in bed, your majesty, your thoughts turn to what will happen in the future. The revealer of mysteries has revealed to you what will happen. Now this is the mystery 
Now this mystery was revealed to me, not because I have more wisdom than any other living person, but so that the dream's meaning might be made known to the king, and so that you might know the thoughts of your own mind. Your majesty, you were looking, and there rising before you was a single massive statue. This statue was huge, shining with dazzling light, and was awesome to see. The statue's head was made of pure gold. Its chest and arms were made from silver. Its abdomen and hips were made of bronze. Its legs were of iron, and its feet were a mixture of iron and clay. You observed this until a stone was cut, but not by hands. And it smashed the statue's feet of iron and clay and shattered them. Then all the parts shattered simultaneously, iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. They became like chaff, left on summer threshing floors. The wind lifted them away until no trace of them remained. But the stone that smashed the statue became a mighty mountain and it filled the entire earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell you, the king, its meaning. You, your majesty, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given kingship, power, might, and glory to you. God has delivered into your care human beings, wild creatures, and birds in the sky wherever they live, and has made you ruler of all of them. You are the gold head. But in your place another kingdom will arise, one inferior to yours. Then a third, bronze kingdom, will rule over all the earth. Then will come a fourth kingdom, mighty like iron. Just as iron shatters and crushes everything, so like an iron that smashes, it will shatter and crush all these others. As for the feet and toes that you saw, which were a mixture of potter's clay and iron, that signifies a divided kingdom. But it will possess some of the unyielding strength of iron. Even so, you saw the iron mixed with earthly clay. So that the toes were made from a mixture of iron and clay. Part of the kingdom will be mighty, but part of it will be fragile. Just as you saw the iron mixed with earthly clay, they will join together by intermarrying, but they will not bond to each other just as iron does not fuse with clay. But in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will raise up an everlasting kingdom that will be indestructible. Its rule will never pass to another people. It will shatter other kingdoms. It will put an end to all of them. It will stand firm forever. Just like you saw when the stone which was cut from the mountain, but not by hands, shattered the iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. A great God has revealed to the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain. Its meaning can be trusted. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say together, thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. That was a lot of verses. <laughs> you know, last week we, we started into uh, a series out of Daniel during this season of Lent. You know, as we, we're looking at, at Daniel, Daniel's this book about, well, Daniel and his three friends who we typically know by their Babylonian given names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In many ways, the book of Daniel is dealing with this, this struggle or this tension of how God's people were to live faithfully in an environment that was contrary to the way God had called his people. How do God's people live faithfully in a place when they're surrounded with cultures and values and, and patterns and celebrations and all of that that goes against what God's intentions for God's people are? 
You know, in Daniel chapter 1, we were introduced to the Babylonian kingdom and King Nebuchadnezzar. You know, the Babylonians were the ones who had, had conquered Judah, who had destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, and then taken the best and brightest, people like Daniel and his friends, captive into Babylon. And their intention was to woo them with all of the beauty and wealth and power of Babylon. To get these captives to fall in love with their captors. So that they would join sides with them and further the empire of Babylon. You know, when I was growing up in middle school and high school, I, I had these three friends who were in kind of my, my circle of friends. They, they were three cousins from uh, each of their parents were, were three different siblings. Their parents had come to the U.S. from China. And they were, the kids, though, were born here in the United States. I remember growing up, I found out that these, these three friends of mine, that about once a month on Saturday, they had to drive down to Portland for Chinese school, where they would learn language and customs that their parents grew up with. I didn't know this for quite some time because my friends didn't like going to Chinese school. They didn't want to learn the language. They didn't want to learn the customs. They didn't want to hold on to that. They just wanted to be like everybody else, right? You know, there's always that pressure to be like those who are around you. Think about how much more so that would have been a challenge when the empire of Babylon was intentionally working hard to woo these people who had come from another land. They were working so hard to make them fall in love with Babylon and everything that Babylon had to stand for. You know, this is the, the challenge that Daniel and his friends were facing. And honestly, this is the challenge that we face as well. We live in a world filled with culture and values and priorities that so often pull us in places away from what God intends. Do you understand what I'm talking about here? And the challenge for us as Christians is how do we live faithfully in this place? How do we live faithfully in a world without becoming of the world in which we live? You know, in many ways, this season of Lent is an opportunity for us to just pause and examine and ask that question, God, search me, help me know if there are, are places where I've gotten caught up in all that surrounds me rather than keeping my focus where it belongs solely on you. You know, and I hope as we go through this season of Lent to examine and to prepare that, that Daniel might help us in this process. You know, in chapter 1 of Daniel, Daniel and his friends are, are faced with this challenge of what things are they going to go along with with the Babylonians and where are they going to take a stand? What are those elements of, of faith and practice where they are going to be committed to those no matter what happens to them. You know, we see them kind of dealing with this challenge and they take a stand when it comes to food. You know, I, I've continued to think about that some this last week. Think about that idea of, of where are some of those places for us? Where are the places where we kind of go along with culture and where are the places where we take a stand? Where we say, if, if I'm going to be faithful to who God's called me to be, I can't go there. You know, we could probably talk about a lot of different scenarios, but as I've been thinking about this this week, I've actually been reminded of the words of Augustine from a long, long time ago. Augustine said this, Love God and do as you will. Love God and do as you will. 
If you don't think about it, you can, you can hear that say, love God, do as I will. Sweet, that means I can do whatever I want to do, right? That's not what that means. Because if you truly love God, what will you do? The kinds of things that would demonstrate love towards God, right? It's a really simple test. Love God and do what you will. You know, while we could talk about a lot of particulars, I think that's a great place to begin. You know, as we think about what are the things that are, are forming us, and we can just stop and ask that question, is this, is this a way of living that shows love towards God and others? Is this a choice that is going to demonstrate love for God and for others? I think that's a great place to begin. You know, I've just continued to think of that from last week, but that, that was chapter one. We're on chapter two, and I read a whole lot of verses, so we better get going here, right? You know, if we would have started at the beginning of chapter two, we would actually realize that King Nebuchadnezzar had been having these dreams. He'd been having all kinds of dreams that were creating all kinds of anxiety, and it got to the point where he just had to know what was going on with this. So he called all of the people who should know this kinds of stuff. He called all of the people with, with knowledge and with abilities to come to try to help him figure out what was going on here. So he invited them into the palace and he said, hey, I'm having these dreams and I need you to tell me what's going on here. So you know what all these people said? They said, hey, king, we'd be happy to tell you. Why don't you tell us these dreams you've been having and we'll go consult all of the things we have about what different dreams mean and we'll tell you what they mean. And King Nebuchadnezzar said, no, that's not how it's going to work this time. You're going to tell me what my dreams are and then you're going to tell me what they mean. And these people thought, um, <laughs> you know, nobody, King, nobody can do that. There is no human being who can know what dreams you are having. That's only something that the gods can do. And the gods aren't just going to go telling us those things. It doesn't work this way. We know what King Nebuchadnezzar says. He says, if you don't do what I've asked you to do, then I'm going to cut you to pieces. And I'm going to turn your houses into rubble. And King Nebuchadnezzar meant that. He was fearsome. He was ruthless. He was paranoid. He was all of these things, and he would certainly do what he said he was going to do. And despite the protests of the people, nobody could tell him his dreams. And so he sent orders to go gather not just those who had come, but to gather all of the sages of all of the kingdom and kill them all. And that's when the people kind of doing the king's command went to Daniel and his friends and said, hey, guess what? You guys are going to have to die because nobody could tell the king his dream and what it meant. And it's here where Daniel said, you know what? No person can do that, but there is a God who can. Would you just give us a little bit of time? And Daniel and his friends, they, they started praying and they cried out to God. When you know, all know the story, right? God gave Daniel the dream and its meaning. And Daniel went before the king, and Daniel told the king his dream. And he told the king its meaning. And he was right, and Nebuchadnezzar praised Daniel for this. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar said, Your God truly is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. 
And then he elevated Daniel and elevated the standing of Daniel's friends. And everyone lived happily ever after until chapter 3, where there's a story about a fiery furnace. And chapter 4, where there's a story about a lion's den. This is kind of the rhythms that we face here. But, you know, in Daniel, in this chapter, there's so much at surface level, but there's also so much going on underneath. And so much that's going on underneath that's really important for the entire book of Daniel. But it's also important for all of Scripture, and it's also important for us today. You know, one of the things that we see happening in chapter 2, has to deal with wisdom. Some people suggest that chapter 2 in Daniel is a chapter that's about wisdom. Now, you realize that there's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is about information. It's It's about stuff that we know. But wisdom, from a biblical standpoint, is about the meaning of life and living life as it was intended to be lived. Living life as it was intended to be lived. That's what wisdom has to do with in Scripture. Wisdom is about living, not just in the, in the micro, but in, but in the big sense, about living into this reality of the way that life was intended to be lived. And here's the thing that Scripture teaches us. We can't come to that wisdom through our own hard work and sheer ability. That wisdom comes from God alone. And the way that we receive wisdom is by faithfulness in the presence of God. It's by spending time regularly in the presence of God. And then God, who is the creator, helps us to come to know how it is to live life in the manner and in the purpose for which it was created. That's really what wisdom is all about. And, and so wisdom isn't just things that people with a lot of knowledge can come to conclusions on their own. It's, it's about living for God and with God and in partnership with God. This is the way that, that God works. And it's the way that, that it works because God is, is sovereign. We, we talked last week a little bit about the sovereignty of God. And this is an idea that, that comes up again here in chapter 2 of Daniel. You know, to say that, that God is, is sovereign talks about this idea that, that God is, is, is over, that God is the one who has the final say. And it's kind of interesting how we get to this here in chapter 2, because if you noticed as we were reading, when Daniel addressed Nebuchadnezzar, he said, he said, you, your majesty, are the king of kings. You, your majesty, are the king of kings. Anybody notice that when we read that? We don't usually think that that title, King of Kings, is associated with an earthly king, do we? In fact, we sang those words just a little bit ago today, talking about who? Jesus, right? You know, Daniel says, you, your majesty, are the King of Kings. There is nobody who is greater than you. You are greater than all the rulers of the earth, and that's, that's true as far as earthly kings go. There was no king like Nebuchadnezzar. There was no king in all of the world who had more power or more strength than Nebuchadnezzar. He truly was the king of kings in that sense. But for all the power that Nebuchadnezzar had, the dream says that his kingdom would not last forever. 
for all the strength, for all the might, for all the ability, his kingdom would not last forever. His kingdom would fall. That's what that whole statue falling and turning to chaff and blowing away is all about, right? The kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar or of any earthly king would not last forever. And the book of Daniel continues to point us towards this sovereignty of God. That God is working, that, that God is, is, is at work in the world even when things seem contrary to this. Now here's the thing about the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God doesn't usually work out the way that we think it should. Sometimes we have a tendency to say, if God was God, then God would do this because that's what I would do. But Daniel tells us that's not the way that God's sovereignty works. We're not God. God's sovereignty doesn't always work the ways that we think that it should, but that does not mean that God is still not sovereign. God is still working in this. And we, we see this play itself out in a couple of ways. One of the first ways that we see this play, set, play out, we see it a little bit in chapter 2. We see this much more in chapter 3 and chapter 4. There's this idea of even if... It's the way that Daniel and his friends choose to live their life. They believe that God is sovereign. But even if God doesn't work in the ways that they hope that God will work, or they wish that God will work, they will continue to submit their lives to God. Because God is the one who will have the final say. We see this pretty clearly in chapter 3. Before Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the furnace... You know what they say in there? They say, our God can rescue us from the fires of the furnace. But even if our God doesn't, we will not bow to any other king. Because there's only one king who's worthy of our allegiance. Same thing we see with Daniel in chapter 4. And in chapter 2, it's pointing us towards this fact. That, that Daniel and his friends will continue to worship God no matter what happens to them. They know that God can intervene. They know that God can accomplish the impossible. But even if it doesn't work the way that they think it should work, they're still going to worship God because they know when all is said and done, there is only one kingdom that will stand, and that is not a kingdom that is formed with earthly hands. God is sovereign. And God is at work. And we actually see this in another way here near the end of chapter, chapter 2. We didn't read these verses, but, but uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar talks to Daniel at the end and he says, Your God really is the God of gods. He is the Lord of kings. King Nebuchadnezzar, through his words, acknowledged that God is greater than him. That God is greater than any earthly thing. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? You know, from his mouth came these words. You know, we see things like this happen throughout all of Scripture. You know, I think you could say that Scripture really gives witness to the fact that God often shows up in the most unlikely of places. And God often shows up in the most impossible of situations to accomplish something. We see this from beginning to end. In the story of creation, God takes chaos and forms order. With Abraham and Sarah, God takes those who are barren and brings life. 
God uses a trickster, Jacob, to further his promise. God takes those who've been exiled and redeems them. In the New Testament, God raises Jesus from the dead. Right? We see God show up in all of these different ways. God is sovereign. God is at work in spite of all of the challenges and circumstances and uncertainties of the world. And to say that God is sovereign does not mean that God has prescribed every detail. But God has determined the outcome. And so we live with trust as we lean into this. You know, as, as I think about Daniel and putting all of this together, there's, um, there's a word that comes to my mind. I, I've said this before, but it's not a word we say often. It's, it's inaugurated eschatology. Probably wasn't on your crossword puzzle this morning. You know, what, what we mean by this, oftentimes people think that that God's will is going to break through at the end of time. That when all is said and done, then God's redemptive work will finally happen. But what scripture tells us is that God's redemptive work is already bursting into creation. That God's redemptive work is already present. And that God's redemptive work will outlive and outlast any power on this earth. So that when all is said and done, what will remain is God's redemptive work that is already present and working. But sometimes it's difficult to see that. You know, I grew up in a town called Longview, Washington. Have you ever been to Longview, Washington? Man, I'm sorry. I don't know what took that many of you to Longview. Yeah, I really don't know what took that many... You know, you probably never appreciate the town you grow up in. And I certainly didn't really appreciate the town I grew up in growing up there. You know, Longview, though, I, I always thought it was kind of this interesting name, Longview. But most of the city is down in this valley. So from most of the city, your view is either of the hills surrounding the city or the mills that line the river. Hills and mills. Hills not so bad, but views of mills is not really something to write home about, Right? It's kind of an interesting name to, to think about there. Now, there were a few spots in town where if you knew where to look, you could see the tip of Mount St. Helens peeking up over the top of the hills. In fact, the, the, the hill that my parents live on, if you go to the top of the hill, not only can you see Mount St. Helens, but you can see Mount Rainier. It's majestic, right? There are those places, but that's not where most of the town is. Most of the town is down in the valley. You don't see any of that stuff. There's another interesting thing about Longview, though. Every once in a while, there'd be somebody from this side of the state who would come to visit who hadn't been there before, or somebody from another part of the country. And, and if you were in the right place, they would see one of the massive ocean liners in the Columbia River there. And it would almost take them a second. They'd be like, wait a second, what is that boat doing here? That thing is massive. We're 60 miles from the ocean. Why is a boat like that in a place like this? Now, I don't know if it's still true, but when I was growing up, Longview was the third largest port in the state of Washington. Behind Seattle and Tacoma, the third one was Longview. It's the third largest port in the state of Washington, but it was 60 miles from the ocean. What does all of that have to do with any of this? You know, Longview was a city where beyond the hills, if you knew where to look, there were these majestic mountains. It was a city that was nestled 
on the Columbia River that runs deep and wide. It was on this river where there was a pathway to the Pacific Ocean and to the rest of the world. But if you weren't paying attention, you wouldn't notice any of those things. You wouldn't notice that there were mountains beyond the hills. You wouldn't notice that there was a path leading somewhere else. If you just looked on what was there around you, it wasn't much to be excited about. You know, Daniel is inviting us to live with a long view that is more majestic and more beautiful than that of a town in southwest Washington. Daniel is inviting us to realize that beyond the things that often cloud our view, there is the majesty of our God who is above all things. Daniel invites us that starting from right where we are, there is a path that takes us into the new creation that comes from God if we are willing to follow it. Daniel invites us to to live with this hope-filled expectation. You know, hope from a biblical sense is not a verb. We tend to use hope as a verb meaning something that we want. I hope Gonzaga goes all the way this year. Really what we're saying is, I, I really want Gonzaga to go all the way this year. Or we say, I hope my salad doesn't have any broccoli on it. Some of you know where that came from. But, but hope is a noun, it's not a verb. It's not something we do, it's something we have. Hope is something we have because of what God has done for us. Hope is something we have because Jesus has already been raised from the dead. And the invitation is for us to live into that, even when we can't see, even when the hills hide what is behind. Even when the path to new creation seems long and winding and we can't see where it is going, it invites us to live into the realities of what God is going to do and where God is going to take us. Amen? And through Daniel, we're invited to do this and not give in to, to the ways of culture, but to trust in God as God calls us and invites us to live through his strength and through his power and through his abilities to be the people that God has called us to be. You know, as we journey through this season of Lent, I'd invite you to just pray a a little prayer with me. Just to ask God to search us, to reveal to us how to live in faithful obedience to him. You with me on that? Just to ask God to search us and to help us to live according to his ways and his paths. Lord, today as we are gathered here, we are so thankful that for all that we might see sometimes, that there is only one who stands, and that is you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live hope-filled lives. Lord, would you help us to live into the reality of your new creation that won't just come in the future, but that is bursting forth today through the lives of your people. And God, we pray that you would help us to not be conformed by the patterns of the world around us, but to allow your grace to work deep in our hearts and lives so that we can be hope-filled people, living hope-filled lives for all the world to see. In your name, amen.